So I hope as you recited that now, by now very familiar passage from Nehemiah chapter 9, that you caught that last phrase of steadfast love. We've been talking about the steadfast love of God uh, for the last uh, several weeks, noting that that is a common, very common, in fact, probably the most common way of, ex- of describing God's love, that he is covenantally bound to his people to love that, to love us and to demonstrate that love for us. And he has showed it in multiple ways, which we have uh, already explored quite a bit. We're going to review just a little bit and then, and then dig into the last part of this uh, section from 1 John chapter 4 that we've been looking at the past few weeks. So, uh, if you would be so kind as to turn to 1 John chapter 4 once again, uh, I will be reading again from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter, and I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this passage and slowly working our way into the heart of it. And we will uh, take the next step uh, today towards that, and Lord willing, we should be able to wrap this passage up this morning. We began by taking a look at the whole idea of abiding, which is 
something that John emphasizes throughout this little epistle again and again, as from the very beginning of abiding in and with the Lord. And in this particular section, he's speaking about God's love and abiding in God's love, and particularly as a means of of confidence and knowing that you are uh, in uh, right relationship with the Lord, that you have uh, safety in His presence. And we've taken a look at a couple of those things. But remember the background of why of of what the background uh, in which these statements are being made John is speaking to a group of people who have been divided because false teachers are coming in and putting forth all kinds of of uh, heretical uh, teaching concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and some are claiming to have special knowledge that nobody else has And they have had some success, apparently, in John's day, of bringing division into the church and pulling some away from the Orthodox faith that had been given through the apostles to the church and trying to say that Jesus was uh, something less than fully God and fully man. Uh, Some of the teachings of the time were that Jesus was not uh, man at all, uh, that his body was something like what we would call today a hologram kind of thing. Uh, just sort of, it's like I'm not even sure how you would even imagine that in that day. But anyway, um, that it really wasn't uh, genuine. He was just uh, pure spirit. Then others that uh, tried to deny full deity because they didn't like the idea of deity being corrupted by uh, a fleshly body and those sorts of ideas. This, these were uh, the, the uh, theological battles that were being waged during that time. And out of those battles came such things as the Apostles' Creed, and the Creed uh, came out of the Council of Nicaea, and the, um, the uh, Creed that came out of Athanasius uh, as he fought against those that tried to find fault with the uh, the the orthodox understanding of who Jesus Christ was as delivered by the apostles. Anyway, perhaps you notice, again, as I read through this passage, the emphasis upon we know, we know, we know, we know. The false teachers were claiming false, uh, were, were, were proclaiming false doctrines, but saying that they had knowledge that nobody else had. There's something bewitching about that, is there not? We like to know that we have something special, that, that people have to come to us for, for knowledge. And that is something that uh, man cannot bear. Uh, part of the reason that, uh, as I've talked with several of you, maybe I haven't talked with everybody about this, but so I, I've been pulling back from certain things and activities in the community just because I was overloaded and, and it was taking a, a huge toll. But one of the, one of the things that uh, you may, if, if you've been observant, you will have noticed that I do not any longer wear a pager. And there's a reason for that. Um, 
because my pager is set to scan, so it gets everything, and um, I know what's going on, and I, and every time that pager goes off, I am on alert, and it got to the point where I just mentally and emotionally could not deal with that anymore. But I have to tell you, it's taking it off and leaving it off is is a challenge. And the reason it is, is because I got really used to everybody, including many of you, you'd hear some rumor of something and you'd call me and go, hey, have you heard about this fire? Have you heard about this accident? Have you heard about this? What's going on here? What's going on there? And I would have the answers. I'd be able to tell you. And there's something really exciting about being the answer man that everybody wants to go to. But I do not have the shoulders to bear that. Only Christ has those kinds of shoulders. It has been a great relief to not have that pager on. Talk to, talk, to, talk to Chief Glazier back there. He'll tell you what it's like. And his wife. Talk to her too. And that's the general response when you think about that pager all the time. It's like, no, not again. So now when, you write, now when people call me and say, what's happening? I go, I don't know. And it's liberating. It's like, I don't know. Maybe I'll call Mike. He knows. Um, wouldn't do that to you. But it is, there's something bewitching about it. And it, yeah, it's been a little hard to go, oh, I, I don't like saying I don't know. But as we humbly walk before the Lord, there are things that are truly His, His realm, His sphere, that are not ours. And resting in His sovereignty and resting in this particular passage his love for us is absolutely liberating. Absolutely liberating. And that is what John is calling the saints to do. He's calling them to deny the false teachers that are claiming special knowledge that only they have. And to go after the faith once for all delivered to the saints and rest in that, in that faith because you know that you are absolutely loved and kept by the Almighty God. And so we looked at the the bookend portions of this particular passage, verses 7 and 8, verses 20 and 21, speaking about the genuine nature of His love. Because it comes from Him. He, as love, is never, that love is never exhausted. It is essential to His being, that steadfast love, that, uh, that covenant faithfulness that He cannot deny. And, and the genuineness of that love that, shows itself as it flows out to one another, as we as you saw the command there, beginning and end, about loving our, our brothers, but also loving God Himself. And that when we are abiding in that love in, that He has shown to us, uh, the effects of those things are also genuine. There is, it, you don't have to try to manufacture things to come up with your own, your own um, uh, pol uh, political or theological party within the church to affirm yourself. You have new birth that is from Him. You have new relationships with Him and with each other that are based upon true knowledge of who God is as He reinforces that by His Spirit. And that is a theme that is also uh, repeated throughout this book and will be repeated again in our comments today. Then as we moved in towards the section, we looked at, uh, this was uh, last week as we spent our time thinking about the Lord's preemptive love. 
He did not wait upon us to act. He did not consult us to act. He was absolutely preemptive in the way that he revealed Christ to the world, in the way that that salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ was executed and carried out in the fullness of time when when he saw fit and in the manner in which uh, he saw fit to carry out the plan that had been made from before the foundation of the earth to redeem us. God took the initiative and 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 decided what the purpose was. It wasn't just so that we could congratulate ourselves that we were in the right party, but rather that we were supposed to be living lives that were holy, putting aside the curse and living as unto him. And preemptive, we noted at the last point last week uh, had to do with with his initiative that while we were yet enemies the ultimate expression of love. It's easy to love those who love you. Our God loved us when we were most unlovely and continues to love us when we are unlovely. He shows the, uh, the initiative, and we took a look at that word propitiation, which came up again uh, during our family camp time as well. As we were singing one of the songs, and I asked everybody to, what, what does that word propitiation mean? The... The means of forgiveness, the means of that covering and reconciliation, uh, Jesus Christ is that means. And uh, this, this is the love in which we're to abide. We're not to be looking for the love of another, another God, or the love of, of others. You know, there's a... We, we live in a very consumer-oriented society. I know you all know that. You've all probably heard many times uh, in sermons that uh, that fact being bewailed, um, particularly because we look around and we see the idea of people never settling anywhere in a, in a visible church somewhere because it seems like we're always looking for greener grass somewhere else. We're looking for a little better, a little better love, a little more attention, a little more opportunity, a little more something. Fill in the blank. And so, in the American landscape, of course, the smorgasbord is out there. We live. Uh, there used to be a a one of those uh, things like Golden Corral or whatever. It was across from um, Bob Jones University when I was a student there. It was called Duff's. The all-you-can-eat place. We affectionately refer to it as stuffs uh, because of uh, uh, the behavior that was common when you walked in those doors. Uh, American church society is a lot like that. Um, the smorgasbord is out there, and we can stuff ourselves on all kinds of various expressions and flavors of Christianity and never truly be satisfied we can gorge ourselves on it, feel miserable about it, blame the church for it because after all we're miserable, but really it's because of our own um, discontent and wanting to just stuff ourselves on certain things and then finding out that, you know, there is such a thing as too much fried chicken. Even to a southerner. But we get... We get that way regarding the church. And American, uh, American Christianity is often that way. And we're looking for a contentment 
of the love of a local body, which is certainly important. But we, all too often, we're trying to find our satisfaction in people rather than God. That's the point I'm getting at. And uh, there is such a thing as too much, I started to say fried people. That doesn't work well. (laughs) Too much fried chicken. Too much of people and not enough of God. And we're out of balance. We need to abide in his genuine preemptive love. But there's another aspect of this love that John uh, speaks of here that's really cool. I've been looking forward to getting to this point. Verses 11 and 12, and then verses 14 through 18. 11 and 12. uh, Beloved, if God so loved us, and how did he so love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He he made the, the sacrifice. If he so loved us, we uh, also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then down to verses 14 through 18. And we have seen, did you catch that? Compared to what we just heard? If you didn't, I will point it out again. If we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no love, fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What word was repeated again and again and again in those verses? Besides love. Perfected. Perfected. This is uh, about the Lord's perfected love. Now what does it mean to abide in God's perfected love. The word perfected here, uh, for those of you that are a more philosophical mindset, you, this is a word that you love. Because uh, this is a word that describes a whole uh, area of discipline in philosophy. So I will uh, break my usual rule about quoting Greek words, and I'll, quote, I'll give you the Greek word here. And it uh, comes from the root word telos. Telos. The full word here is tetelestai. Um, but telos, which means end or goal. End or goal. You know, when we, I was asked, we were talking about this with the kids in the communicant class this morning. It's really cool. Because we were talking about glorification. And glorification is about the Lord uh, making us perfect, finally, once and for all. Uh, Signed, sealed, delivered, no changes after that. Perfected. And I asked them what they thought that meant. And they came up with some good answers, like holy or purity. And that's, that's part of it. But the idea of being perfect uh, held up a stapler up there. All of you have staplers at home or in your office. Any of you have a perfect stapler? <laughs> How many of you hate your staplers? 
It's not, those aren't, the staplers you hate aren't perfect. You hate aren't perfect. Why are they not perfect? Because they do not do what they were designed to do. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. But if a stapler actually staples paper, actually goes through without bending the, the things into pretzels, you love that stapler. You cherish that stapler. You keep that stapler. Some of you have those old, some of the old ones that they weigh like a pound, you know, that were made back in the 50s, but those suckers will go through anything. They may be scratched, they may be dented, they may look ugly, they may not be ergonomically designed, whatever, but they are the perfect stapler because they do what they're supposed to do. That's the idea of perfection. You and I have lots of scratches and dents. And when it comes to our love for one another, um, there are times when we bend the staples with each other, do we not? But as we are sanctified in Christ, and He enables us to grow from grace to grace and glory to glory, to abound in love more and more, as Paul puts it, towards each other, our love is more and more perfected as it becomes more and more conformed to what God designed us to do in relationship with one another in our love for our brothers and sisters and in our love for God Himself. The implications of this are huge for the way that we respond to one another and to God in love. When we respond to God in imperfect love, we give Him second best, we... we uh, you know, are content with whatever ritual we toss it. We toss his way. See, Lord, I did this, so therefore I'm I'm loving you, kind of thing. But God did not love us that way. We are to love sacrificially God and others as God did with us. That is what John is saying here. Let's see how this is developed, because this perfection that is spoken of uh, regarding love means that this love has been brought to its end or goal. That's the meaning of this particular form of this Greek word. In verse 11, we do have a perfect example to follow, do we not? God himself and in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read there that uh, this is how God loved us. So we ought to follow that. That's, that's our perfect example. God showed love to its nth degree by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And when we go on to verse 12, it's not just an example to follow here. There is, there's a, I'm going to use the term expression here in, in a broad sense. A perfect expression to believe. Verse 12a says, um, sorry, no one has ever seen God. And then down in 14 and 15, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You take those two things together, and what do you have? Was John just kind of forgetting what he said up just a few sentences before? No one has seen God, but we have seen. 
the false teachers were claiming special knowledge based on whatever visions or revelations that they uh, purported to have had. But John says he, by we, he's speaking of the apostles here, of those that were in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who were witnesses of his crucifixion, ministry, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection, and indeed his ascension. He's saying, where are the witnesses to what is real? And while no man has seen God at any time, we have seen his Savior. And we know uh, that that Savior was the perfect, absolute expression of who God is and what he has done. In the book of, uh, in in, uh, the Gospel of John, well, actually, let's turn back in 1 John first before we get to the Gospel. 1 John, just back to chapter 1. Do you remember this when we looked at uh, this a while back? Um, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. John is leaving it to uh, no doubt as to the nature and the authenticity of the witness. And he's saying you can believe what we're telling you because of what we have seen, how we've examined this, how we've been in the presence of the Savior of all mankind. And this is the Savior we proclaim to you, not those, the one that the false teachers are putting forward. Why is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ so important? John, in his Gospel, in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, says, The law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is as clear a declaration as can be that the Lord Jesus Christ is one with the Father, just as he declared to be later on, uh, as recorded in John 17. The only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus Christ. He's the one who has made him known. So Christ himself and those who have testified to him clearly, apostolic, apostolic witnesses and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declaring this we can believe. Anything less is suitable for the round file and not worthy of consideration. If we go on in verse 12 and then down to verse 16, we, come, we see the next aspect of this perfected love. As, as God's love is brought to full and is shown in all of, its, all of its glory as it has accomplished its goal, which is to redeem a people. We have a great expectation in which we can rest. 12a, 12b says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's, his love is brought to its fullness in us, brought to its goal. That is our redemption. A redemption that 
goes beyond, as we were talking about uh, this with the young people um, during our class this morning, uh, it goes beyond just a moment in time when we pray to prayer. A lot of times we think salvation is just, you know, um, I prayed a prayer, so now I'm saved. And we, if we ask what salvation is, it's, it's trusting in Jesus. Well, okay. That's a pretty important component of it. But beloved, I would contend, and I think that I can uphold this pretty well from the scriptures, that your salvation began before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, with the Father's choice. And it, your salvation continued with His calling, with His, uh, his granting you uh, uh, repentance and faith, His uh, adoption of you, His justification of you, His ongoing sanctification of you. These are all components of your salvation. Salvation is not a moment in time. It is a life that is redeemed. And it continues on to, it, to its ultimate expression and finality when we are glorified with Him. That is our salvation. And when we look at the expectations, therefore, in which we can rest, it is really, as His love is perfected in us, He's bringing all things to the goal of the full redemption of not just individuals, but a people, a kingdom for the Son. So He abides in us and perfects that love in us. In verse 16, similar kinds of thought, uh, of thought there. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. He is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What are some of the expectations in which you, can, you and I can rest in this perfected love of God? Not a half-hearted love, not a mere compassion, not a mere tolerance um, for us, but agape, sacrificial love for us. First of all, you can expect His sanctification. He is not going to let you go. He's going to continue to minister to your heart and call you to uh, repentance when you stumble and sin. He's not going to let you go. He will continue to sanctify you and make you more and more holy unto Him. You can expect to be sure. Surety in God. As verse 16 says there, we've come to know and to believe in this love that God has for us. You know, the world loves to try to tie Christians in knots and ask really silly or impudent questions. Um, some of you may have been at the receiving end of some of those of unbelievers go, well, what about this, that, and the other, and all of that. And it's like, you need to, you need to uh, and, and for some reason, we get intimidated by that. And we don't really understand that it really, it's pretty simple. The world longs for something that we possess and they don't have. And that is a surety in relationship with their creator. Some people have described that as a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. Okay, if that image works for you, I guess that's great. But the fact is, is that without God, we're without hope in the world. We're lost. 
And the world spends its time and its energy spinning its wheels in a lost condition, looking for answers, but, but ignoring the one that's right smack dab in their face, according to Romans chapter 1. His love is sure. And when we experience that, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit here in a minute too, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right, we may not be, um, you know, the world's greatest theologians and be able to give all these, you know, highfalutin answers that uh, will satisfy the wicked. By the way, there are no highfalutin answers that will satisfy the wicked. You can be as erudite as you please and they'll never satisfy the wicked because they're determined to be wicked and they're, gonna deter- they're determined to not believe. C.S. Lewis in the, the Last Battle in one of the Chronicles of Narnia describes, some of you may have read that, I may have read that, so I know who of you. Okay. Well, there's these little, these little dwarves that are in rebellion against Aslan the king. They don't they only want to live for themselves. They're shoved into a little hovel, um, and Aslan comes among them, and he's trying to. He's teaching uh, those who are following him. Doesn't matter what I say. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what you do. You can say anything you want to. They've made up their mind that this, that this, that they've got is all there is. That and their lot in life is this, and it doesn't matter what good things I give to them. They will trample it underfoot. They will say it's something else, and they're going to deny it. And he develops that in the story. And the world is just that way. The world, the God can put all, God could and does put all kinds of blessings in this world for all to enjoy. And fallen man tramples it underfoot and does not give credit to its source. And indeed is more prone to find fault with it than anything else. But you and I have a surety that God loves us and we abide in Him. You know, if someone comes to me and says, uh, can you prove that your wife loves you? What, what's the best that I can do? I can say, she does this for me. She does that for me. She says this to me. She says that to me. I can go down a list of things that are tangible that way. But are those really proofs? No. They're indications. How can I prove that she loves? I, I can't, you know, by scientific dissection, open up her mind and go, there's the spot right there. Love for Lynn. Yep, it's there. No. I can say all those other things. But anybody could say, well, she just does that because she wants you to do this or she wants you to do that. She wants you to clean out the whatever. Not that she does that, okay? But that's the way the world thinks. The proof is in the power of the relationship that we have as our hearts are knit together in a way that goes beyond words. And those of you that have that kind of relationship know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not about proof. It's about the reality that we experience. The world doesn't know that. John is describing that here. Of abide, and describes it as abiding in God and He in us. And we know that. We know that He loves us. And in that uh, certainty, that surety that is ours, there is solidarity that we have with Him. Also there in verse 16. Um, 
we know and believe that God, uh, the love that God has for us. He is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This reciprocal relationship. You know, you, I, I know I've challenged you, and I'm sure if you've been in the church at any time, for any length of time, others have challenged you as well about abiding in God. And a lot of the, the focus that we have is upon our responsibility and our, our desire and our activity, right? Um, we don't often think about God abiding with us. But he does. And he does that by his spirit. In John 17, I mean, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus prayed uh, there in the upper room with the disciples that they, speaking of the disciples, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This solidarity with the Lord spills out into solidarity for one another, and then that in turn issues forth a testimony of the reality of who Christ is, reality of what he does in people's hearts and lives, and how he knits us together by his love and keeps us in his love. That's our expectation. Sanctification, surety, solidarity with God. That's a high and lofty expectation, and yet John speaks of it almost not in an offhand way. I mean, he's being very deliberate about it. But there's not a lot of verbiage here. He just said, this is the way it is. God abides in you, you abide in him. If your love is perfected and you're dwelling in that perfected love and not, not, uh, not uh, just being content with uh, a half-baked version of, of love, an imitation version of love. In this perfected love, the, the end of this love is not just to make us feel warm and fuzzy, but there is uh, there's an end goal for this. And that is our glorification and ultimate, uh, uh, ultimately being united with Him for eternity and everlasting life. And in verses 17 and 18, this is spoken of um, uh, really kind of from the, the coming at it from the other way. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect. And that is a love that is realized, a love that is perfected. It's the same, uh, same word that we've been talking about. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In God's perfected love, this is our perfect escape from judgment. It's what we're to be abiding in, resting in His, his uh, intention to save us not only from the perversity of this life, but from the judgment of the next. And what confidence that we are to have. John speaks of that here. The peace that we have for the life to come. Not to live in fear of judgment. Not to live in fear of what man may do to us. Not to live in fear of failure of relationships and all of that. Which These kind of fears that plague our lives. When there is fear, beloved, your love is not perfected. Let me say that again. If you're living in fear of whatever... It, 
your love for God and your love for others still has some work to do. It needs to be more sanctifying going on because where love is brought to its end in a relationship, um, that fear goes away. For those of you that have been married for a while, um, and I trust that this is true of all of you, I, as I look around this congregation, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I'm pretty sure that you don't wake up in the morning going, I wonder if she's still going to love me today. I wonder if he's still going to love me today. Some of you have been through relationships where those thoughts may very well have been there. But for those of you that have been together a while, your love is perfected. doesn't mean you, you can't improve things. It means it's been brought to its end of, of living for one another, confidence in one another. All those things are there. So that the fear of the relationship dissolving somehow is just is not there anymore. Maybe it was when you were younger, but it isn't now. And that's all the more remarkable when you consider that the older that you get, um, the more uh, weaknesses that we seem to come up with, the more challenges that we have in fulfilling our, our, uh, our duties and the things that we would like to do uh, with each other and all of that. And yet... The love doesn't fall apart. Why? Because the love was perfected in, in bringing about the oneness of your hearts together. When we have that kind of love and recognize that we're abiding in God's love that is perfected, begins with Him, it's perfected, it's shown by His providing of our Savior and working out our salvation. When we rest in that and abide in that perfected love, He brings our love for Him ever greater levels of perfection. Now, there's a, there's a reason why people talk a lot about things like assurance. Assurance and the need to talk about assurance uh, comes about because our love is imperfect for the Lord. And we, we sin and we, we uh, stumble we wonder if He's still going to love us. And doubts come in. But the more that we're sanctified, the more that our love for Him is perfected by His grace, the less fear we have about falling away. And that's the way it should be. Because the whole goal is to take us away from judgment, not leave us in that place of judgment. And that brings me uh, to the last thought here as we wind this down and look at the very heart of this passage is verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him. What is the by this therefore? What is it referring to? It's referring to the perfection of God's love in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And this is all wrapped up with what God did in showing His perfect love in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, uh, remember, said, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So the knowledge is brought here by this we know. 
that we abide in him because of his, what he has done for us. And if you look back also in chapter 3 and verse 24, same kind of thinking here. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And here, again, the role of the Holy Spirit is brought to bear as it is so often in this little epistle that the Spirit of God is given to those who are truly his and is that seal in our hearts that helps us to know that we truly are his. That connection that can't really be explained in words, uh, but we know that nevertheless is very real. Just a few verses to kind of wrap up this thought. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, a familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you, where the apostle says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life can you declare that with confidence. Paul, I referred earlier to his letter to the Ephesian church, and in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the power, the go- sorry, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This abiding that we're talking about and his love, that it's, yes, it's genuine, it's preemptive, it's perfect. It, it, he's shown it all the way to its end, what its goals were, are, and he's brought it about. This love that we are to abide in is guaranteed. <coughs> To live with the confidence of a guarantee is something that uh, we uh, we like. You know, every time you go buy something at a, a hardware store these days, they want to sell you an extra little extended warranty so you can have a better guarantee. You go buy a used car, they want to send you an extended warranty so that you'll buy more. You'll be more confident in the purchase because you have a guarantee. And those guarantees really aren't worth all that much. But the guarantee of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God given to us, who, as God, never leaves us, never fails us, and is always abiding with us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 1, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, who has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his Spirit in our hearts, as a guarantee. Beloved, abide in the guaranteed love of our Lord. Stick to it until the end, as hard as it may be. That means uh, to that end, the means to that end is God's love. And it endures. Abide in His genuine, preemptive, perfect, and guaranteed love. Find reason to hope with certainty. In the everlasting life he has prepared for you, his child, his love will never fail. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you for your great love for us. Lord, let us abide in it. 
Let us not look for the love of any other God, any other pleasure, any other possession, any other position or power. Lord, let us be content with your love. Let us flourish in it as you have promised us. Abide in us. Help us to abide in you and bring us home to glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.